Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You're hearing a pig greet a human at a pig research facility outside of Vienna, Austria. The facility belongs to the University of Veterinary Medicine in Vienna, and it's kind of like pig heaven. Pigs aren't constrained in crates. They're allowed to roam around, to build their own structures. They basically just get to hang out. These recordings are actually videos. In this one, three pigs are huddling together. My favorite recording is this one, of a pig blowing bubbles into a puddle of water. The idea is that these pigs get to live their best lives away from the constraints we usually put on them. And that's because scientists want to see what pigs are really like without us. And the pigs sort of, they just sort of lollop around, you know, like uh, <laughs> like a cow would, um, like a sheep would or a goat would. And it sort of, it, it really did change my impression of pigs to see them move against the landscape because we're just so unused to that. I think we're, we're so used to them either being in very churned up mud or being in, in sort of uh, quite industrial surroundings. That's my colleague Henry Mance talking to me from our London studio. I invited him on because last month he wrote a cover story for FT Weekend magazine about pigs. It looks at some recent science that's showing us what many already guessed, but most of us don't want to admit, that pigs are far more sentient and complex than we give them credit for. I think basically the way we think about pigs is we don't think about pigs because yeah. to think about pigs is really uncomfortable. And it's it's really uncomfortable because we a lot of people find them beautiful animals, find them cute animals. They're some of the first animals we see in storybooks. And we don't like to think of them suffering because we know those of us who have seen them up close, that they they have abilities, they have awareness. Um, and so I think we justify it to ourselves in, in various ways around um, hoping that they, they're given uh, good lives. Today, I speak with Henry about all things pigs. Because as we understand more about how pigs and other animals think and feel, we're asking bigger questions about how we farm and eat them. Then we go back to the world of humans and the dwelling structures we build. Specifically, skyscrapers, pencil skyscrapers, this kind that are half a block wide, hundreds of feet tall, and have just a few very expensive units. I talk about them with the FT's architecture critic, Edwin Hethcote. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Henry Mance is the FT's chief features writer. He's also an animal lover although he's actually pretty skeptical of the term. He has a book out called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. And the premise is that we all say we love animals, but as a rule, we're pretty bad at loving them. And the idea being that we all describe ourselves as animal lovers. You know, even uh, Tucker Carlson, I think, uh, <laughs> I, I've got a clip of him saying, I love animals. Um, and it's like, it's part of what it means to be a good human. Um, but we don't actually follow through with that. So the pig thing is part of a broader exploration for Henry. 
And it's also part of a broader exploration for science, which for the past 30 years has been really interested in cognition. How do we think and feel? There has been like this whole cognitive turn in animal research over the past 30 years. And like one by one species have had attention paid to them. One of the research groups I visited for this piece in Budapest in Hungary, when they'd started off researching dogs in the 1990s, it was seen as something pretty crazy. I mean, it was seen like, why are you going to bother looking at what dogs can do, how clever dogs are? And now sort of 20, 30 years on, it's absolutely normal and accepted to go and do research with dogs, pigs, cats, you know, rats, goats. And so you can come to some tentative conclusions about, you know, what animals are aware of. So now it's the pig's turn. Henry thought he should check in on the latest in pig research. So in addition to Austria, he went to Budapest. In Budapest, what they're doing is they're trying to work out how um, domestication affects animals. So we know that dogs are, um, are particularly sensitive, for example, to the way that humans act. So if a human points, the, uh, a dog will tend to take, take note of that. And mm. the question is, is that because as puppies, they've been brought up with human presence? And therefore, if you treated a pig in the same way, if you treated a pig with love and care, they would do the same thing. Henry actually met some pigs living dog lives in Budapest. Here's a recording of one named Pilo. She's being asked to sit in Hungarian. The researchers there are finding that pigs are entirely capable of learning all the same tricks as dogs. They sit, they beg for food. Pilo's keeper, who's a dog trainer by trade, actually said that pigs are faster at learning commands because they're so food motivated. Henry also spoke with a researcher in Copenhagen who's categorizing whether pigs' grunts change based on their mood. It turns out they can sense stress and pass it on, just like humans. You know, Henry, it's, I was thinking about how we think about pigs culturally, <laughs> and uh, they get a really bad rap, you know? Like, people think that pigs are dumb, and they're dirty, and they're sweaty, and they're lazy, and um, <laughs> and reading your piece, it's like, okay, they're not these things. They're these, like, emotionally complex, collaborative, definitely food-motivated, but, you know, easy-to-teach, kind of sweet yeah, so let's take some of those on because you've mentioned it. I mean, so yeah, let's do uh, it. Sweating like a pig—that isn't a thing. I mean, pigs have very <laughs> few sweat glands, um, and they don't really sweat uh, <laughs> at all. Um, and the phrase "sweating like a pig" probably comes um, from pig iron, i.e., sort of the smelting of a of a metal, rather than ah. anything to do with pigs. Pigs are dirty. Well, they like they like rolling around because they can't sweat. They need to wallow in water, and so <laughs> right, they God. they'll wallow in mud. Um, like a, like a hippopotamus, but they're actually clean animals. And one of the things, one of the reasons you can keep pigs quite um, happily as a pet, potentially, um, is that they don't like to um, go to the toilet where they eat. So they're not oh, they're not going to be um, messing up your apartment or um, or your house. And and actually, on farms, there's been some kind of work to see whether you could have a separate area established, kind of a pig toilet, and it does seem to work. And they do seem to respond to that. So they're not. Um, they're not dirty. Yeah. The truth is we have a slightly complicated view of, of pigs because obviously George Orwell wrote in, um, in Animal Farm that you know, the, the, the pigs were more equal than the others. The pigs, the pigs right. effectively took charge. So there has been this idea of, of intelligent pigs. And there have been actually over, over history, I was sort of fascinated to learn 
uh, you know, examples of pigs being used for quite cognitive tasks that that we associate with dogs. So um, as guard pigs, as herding pigs, um, and and of course, you know, truffles. You know, pigs are uh, uh, um, have these incredible um, snouts. And actually, it was so great to be up close with a a few pig snouts because you just see how they move because they can move in all these different directions and you and you see how excited they are by the different smells of your shoes or whatever. So pigs have gotten a bad rap. How did this happen? The answer boils down to the fact that over the centuries, we've put them in situations where they can't help but be disgusting. We've put them in cages where they can't move, so they seem lazy, and where they act aggressively toward their young because they're frustrated. But in a natural environment, they are totally different. In the 70s, they wondered basically, would pigs act like wild boar from which they were domesticated um, probably around 9,000 years ago? And Mm. so they put um, a group of pigs uh, who'd been raised on farms into a semi-wild environment. And very quickly, the pigs started acting like wild boar. So they started making nests. They started forming little groups when the the sows, the females were ready to give birth. They would go off from the group and build their own nest. And I think if you get the chance to see pigs in that kind of natural environment, it does alter um, our perspective. Humans kill about 1.5 billion pigs a year. And of course, one of the big reasons to study them is because we eat them. And because in recent years, there's been a lot more focus on how we treat them. Pigs come from China, and traditionally they were kept in yards. They were confined to specific areas, but able to move around. In the last 50 or so years, though, we've been farming them in factories, where they can't exercise their bodies or their minds. So, for example, on factory farms, pigs can't play with straw, because straw gunks up the drainage. And you need the drainage, because in this scenario, pigs have to go to the bathroom inside their crates. So you'll have some pigs which are kept inside their their whole lives. And some of um, the mother pigs, the sows, may be kept in effectively cages, what are called sow stools or crates, really, with uh, steel bars on either side. Um, And they're they're sort of so small that they're unable to turn around. The point Mm. of these uh, stools, which have been introduced really since the 70s, is that they make it very easy to keep large numbers of pigs um, in sheds. And they make it very easy for untrained uh, stock people, um, i.e. Uh, people who work on the farms, to feed these pigs. And they reduce the aggression. You know, they stop pigs fighting because they're just in these confined areas. But they can't turn around. Their bone health suffers. They're assumed to be very, very frustrated. And pigs, which in the wild would spend uh, sort of most of their time grazing or rooting around in the soil, just can't do anything. And some mm. of them sort of are biting the bars. These gestational crates, the pens where the sows can't move, they're banned in Europe. In the U.S., people are trying to ban them, including billionaire investor Carl Icahn. He's been publicly pressuring McDonald's to completely stop using them. And, you know, it's hard to write about the science of animals, especially animals that we eat, without running straight into ethical conversations about how we raise them and whether we should eat them at all. I should say that Henry is vegan himself. But he insists that he didn't write the piece to make you vegan. I have to ask on behalf of, I'm sure there are skeptics out there. I saw a few below your piece. When you write this, is a goal of this piece for you to get people to stop eating meat? No, totally not. And um, I should say this piece wasn't my idea. And, um, you know, when I spoke to these researchers, we weren't really trying to focus on on that question. We were we, mm. what, what they were trying to deal with and what I was trying to understand was, you know, how do you find out what goes on inside an animal's mind? But then 
time and time again, when you ask those questions, you then look at some of the conditions on farms and you think this is inconsistent with the way we treat other animals. And I think that that is a often a very logical sort of uh, move to go from, and some of the research I spoke to, they weren't, I mean, I have no idea whether they eat meat or not, but they would describe their experiments and then they would say, you know, this is, it's very difficult to justify keeping animals in some of the conditions they are. So if it's about the science, here are some other scientific facts about pigs you may not know. They yawn sympathetically. If you yawn, they'll likely yawn too. Pigs may be capable of lying. A pig that knows where the food is will lead a pig who doesn't away from the food. And a pig that makes a high-pitched squeal is likely in distress. Happy pigs produce deeper sounds. So as you can see, the more you learn, the more you can identify with them. So Henry, I'm curious like what you think we should be looking for as we start to reevaluate our relationship with animals. You know, I know people who went on Netflix and watched My Octopus Teacher and then they totally gave up eating octopus, but they eat all the other animals. Or like from your piece, you know, we eat pigs, but we don't eat dogs. And so like, what do you look for? What do we look for? Is it intelligence? Is it emotion? I think it's, I think there's an element of irrationality that comes in here. And there are some animals who are so intelligent or charismatic or beautiful that it's just very hard to imagine um, eating them if you really didn't need uh, need to. And right. I mean, that's certainly how I feel about whales or uh, octopuses, which you know we understand to be very intelligent. But also about, I mean, just from an aesthetic point of view, I find it would find it quite difficult to eat a jaguar. Right, right. And then then there's this question of, well, why don't we eat our pets? Mm-hmm. And you know, I think when you start getting to these kind of questions, you need to be really sure that. These animals have had a, a good life and a, a, a fulfilling life and a satisfying life. Have these animals had the life in which they can take decisions over their own destiny? And the problem with that is that once you then have animals who are taking decisions, who are deciding their own path on Earth, well, then they start showing personalities and start showing uh, themselves to be individuals. And then you feel uncomfortable yeah. eating them for that reason. So I, I think there are lots of circles you can get into. You know, it's it's interesting with a piece like this because we've talked on this show about how it's really hard to live like a fully ethical life. We had the author Dan Brooks on recently and came to the conclusion that it's just impossible to do all good. And, you know, some people argue that almonds are worse than eggs. And I guess I'm curious where you land on that when, as you're, you know, extending beyond the piece. I think I'm kind of uh, perhaps like hopelessly naive or optimistic or I'm someone who, who does believe individual action matters and who does believe that there are... Um, ways forward which are better than other ways. I think that if you do come to the conclusion, and it's not the point of this piece, but if you do come to the conclusion that uh, certain types of farming are wrong, then, you know, with every meal you have or, or don't have, you make a choice and you send a signal. And that has produced huge change in the course of, of my lifetime, for example, in, in terms of keeping chickens in cages. You know, I spoke to Temple Grandin, who is a kind of pioneer of animal husbandry in, in the US and certainly not a, someone who doesn't eat meat, um, so, you know, works with the meat industry. And what she would say is that there's been a kind of aberration over the past 30, 40 years in some forms of farming, which have just got too industrialized. You know, steel was mm-hmm. so cheap that it, suddenly contractors were offering to build farmers these kind of uh, caged environments. And, and she says, you know, well, the best thing that might have happened to pigs is that the price of steel has gone up so much that it's no longer viable to, to build these cages. 
And so mm. I think it's partly about re- realizing that the systems we have are not the systems we always had, and they don't have to be the systems that we we live with for years and years. Uh, Henry, thank you so much for being on the show. This was great. Thanks a lot for having me. Over the past decade, there's been a new style of skyscraper popping up along the New York City skyline. They don't have the Art Deco grandeur of the Chrysler or the Empire State or the heft of One World Trade. They're much thinner, like chopsticks or pencils poking out of the sky. And according to Edwin Hethcote, who's our architecture and design correspondent, that likeness has given them all sorts of nicknames. And that's kind of what they become colloquially known as, the pencil skyscrapers or the skinny scrapers or the, the super skinny towers. You know, there are dozens of names for them. These skinny scrapers have shot up mostly along the southern edge of Central Park. It's known as Billionaire's Row, which should give you an idea of who's living there or at least who's buying the units. Edwin wrote about these skinny scrapers recently for FT Weekend. I've put the piece in the show notes. In it, he quotes a professor named David Madden. He used this phrase when talking to me that these should be seen more as landbound yachts than apartments, that they don't address any kind of issue in the housing market, but rather they're assets which are aimed at a class of footloose, uh, high net worth individuals. It's a kind of trophy property rather than uh, something that allows them to become part of the city, life of the city. I invited Edwin on to tell us what these skinny scrapers represent and how architecture can reflect the identity of a city. I am really excited to talk to you about this because I live in New York and I feel like every once in a while I look up and the skyline has another of these extremely tall, extremely narrow skyscrapers like poking up. And uh, we're all kind of annoyed by them. And we know not a lot of actual New Yorkers really live in them. Um, But they're also architecturally kind of fascinating. What are they? Where did they come from? They are a real departure, actually, for skyscrapers, because for most of the history of of that type of building, it used to be commercial space. It used to be offices. And in the last uh, 20 years or so, real estate prices in the big cities have gone so uh, crazy that it becomes economically worthwhile to build these extremely slim towers uh, in a way that it wasn't previously. They would have made no financial sense. And Edwin, before we talk about them in detail, I'm curious if these types of skyscrapers exist in cities outside of New York, like I'm thinking of Dubai or Shanghai. it is a very New York thing, actually. Um, they, they do exist. So there are very slender towers. There are some in um, Hong Kong and Singapore, but really nothing like as attenuated or kind of caricatured as they are in, in Manhattan. When Edwin says caricatured, he's talking about buildings that at their base take up about three brownstones worth of space, and then they shoot up more than a quarter of a mile into the sky. The newest one, 111 West 57th Street, is the thinnest skyscraper in the world. It has 84 floors and only 60 units. So in the tower, each condo has at least a floor to itself. 
They sell for between eight and $66 million. There are photos of some of these in Edwin's piece. In your piece, you go into detail about the newest skinny scraper, uh, 111 West 57th. Can you describe it? It seems like like quite a feat. It, it is a feat. I mean, it's a, it's a truly remarkable building. It's, um, you know, I think... Uh, and maybe in my article, I compared it to a uh, a small stack of coffee stirrers that have been uh, slightly slightly kind of staggered, you know, maybe five or six that have been staggered. So at the top, there's this kind of feathered effect. Mm-hmm. It doesn't resemble anything else. You know, it's, it's so slim and so uh, kind of new in a way as a typology that it's it, it needs its own kind of whole archetype. Part of the reason these skinny scrapers have appeared in Manhattan first is because in Manhattan, there aren't that many restrictions on how tall you can build. With a bit of maneuvering, developers can essentially go as high as the technology allows if it makes sense financially. I mean, you think of New York, you think of tall towers, right? Part of the issue with these super tools is what are they for? And one answer to that is they are to reinforce a city's own idea of itself. New York has always been keen on height as, as a kind of tool for self-promotion and self-image. So, you know, we just need to think of the, of the World Trade Center, the Empire State Building. They're symbolic architectures which uh, att- attempt to transform the skyline and make the skyline into an image. So I think in a way this super tall phenomenon is a way for New York to recapture the, the kind of high ground in the in the skyscraper game. So I think a lot of it actually is to do with specific self-image as well as need. And I think you mentioned Dubai. It's another city that has that same need. You know, so I think Dubai is, is a kind of, in a way, an artificial uh, city. It's, it's based on real estate value. Uh, so you may well get um, skyscrapers which are taller or more extraordinary or more... Um, extravagant than they need to be because they're all part of Dubai's image as a thrusting, uh, innovative uh, place where you know you you go for incredible views and uh, uh, a kind of a, an emerging skyline for the global south. A person in your piece uses this term vertical suburbanism, which is very weird to think about anything about Manhattan as suburban. What does that mean? It's a strange new way of looking at the skyscraper phenomenon. So we're very used to sprawl being a horizontal phenomenon, you know, that the, that the suburbs sprawl out beyond the edges of the city and they get sparser and sparser as they, as they um, uh, reach further out. But you could argue, and Samuel Steen, the um, sociologist uh, and, and writer, uh, calls it exactly that. He calls this vertical sprawl. So the way that the city gets sparser as it climbs towards the clouds. And it's a very interesting way of uh, reconceptualizing the city, that the, that the kind of sparse uh, level way, way up above, 100 stories above the sidewalk, uh, becomes its own kind of suburb. Uh, with these very exclusive residences surrounded by a lot of space. But I think the problem really is the gap between the aesthetics. You know, you can appreciate these things as pretty elegant buildings and extremely fine pieces of engineering. And what they do to the city and how they make the people who encounter them feel. You know, 
there, there, there is a sense of um, common ownership, I think, with buildings like the Empire State Building. Everyone has a memory of going to the Christmas tree at the mm-hmm. Rockefeller Center or going to the, the, you know, the old uh, restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center. And these new buildings are not that. These pencil skyscrapers are kind of super exclusive and they are for the, the, the kind of uh, 0.01%. They're mm-hmm. for the oligarchs. And I think that that disconnect has made them harder to love. That really resonates with me. And when your piece came out, I was talking to my sister about it, and she just was infuriated by them, you know, went on this sort of rant about wealth inequality in the U.S., and and they are kind of the aesthetic expression of that. Um, and I'm curious if you can talk about that. Like, wh- what do you do in a city where there's buildings that everybody hates. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is one of the issues which uh, comes up again and again with the super tools is that they are a very clever use of engineering, but you have to ask the question, who are they for? And is it worth it? So the, the impact they have on the city is so great visually and yet the amount of housing they provide is so small. A kind of average eight-story Parisian apartment block would probably give you three times that many people. So in, in a way, it's billed as a very efficient use of space on the ground, but it's a very poor use of space as it rises. The contemporary city is becoming hollowed out as uh, its prime real estate in the centre becomes completely dedicated to uh, residential real estate. So it's not just the New York phenomenon that's happening in Paris and Chicago and London in Rome, you know, even in Barcelona. And I think we need cities to be very strong. There has been a, in recent years, notably in London, um, but I think in a lot of US cities as well, uh, an abnegation of responsibility by planners. So effectively, planning has been left to developers and the, the planners kind of respond to what the developers propose. So planning has become um, reactive rather than proactive. And in, in other cities, in, in say Germany um, or Switzerland, that's very much not the case. The planners plan the envelope and you have to build as an architect or an engineer or a developer within that envelope that's being given for you. And there are critics of both uh, types of development. The critics of Germany will say, yeah, that's fine, but then everything ends up looking like the dockside in Hamburg. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the critics of the kind of more laissez-faire uh, planning approach of London will just ask you to look at the London skyline and, you know, no more needs to be said. It's completely incoherent. <laughs> New York is one of the world's financial capitals, so it's natural that international buyers are investing here in these pied de But in a city where rents continue to rise, this year they rose by 33%. Those sales come at a high price for New Yorkers. It's easy, in some ways, to build something for 60 oligarchs who barely even spend time there. Why not build something for the rest of us? These new towers reflect that back at us in tangible brick and glass. And Edwin says that developers, urban planners, and politicians need to be way more deliberate if we want to build a functional city for the future. You know, I think we can give the developers and the uh, the, the high net worth individuals their height, but there needs to be 
uh, a payback then. And I think that's what really hasn't been thought through. If, for instance, the the Russian oligarchs and the, you know who've gone now, but the the Chinese uh, uh, super rich or the or the European tax exiles or whoever it might be, if they disappear off the scene or you know they decide on a, to, to to land in a different city, what else can these buildings be used for? Can they be converted to I don't know schools, museums? Probably not. They're super specific. They're they're just built for one thing. So I think that's you know that we need to be building architecture now that is is going to be flexible and adaptable for a completely unknown future. Yeah. Edwin, uh, this was so interesting. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Lana. Really nice to talk to you. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next week, we have an entire episode on the art market as it closes out its spring season. We'll learn how it works from arts editor Jan Daly and art market columnist Melanie Gerlis. And we also talk to Alex Rotter from Christie's. He's the head of their 20th and 21st century art, and the auction houses had a banger of a season. If you like the show, I would love if you could share it with your friends or on your Twitter or on your Instagram story. That really helps people find us. Also, please keep in touch as always. Tell me all of your cultural interests at the moment. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rack. You can see behind the scenes podcast content on my Instagram. Links to everything mentioned here today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT, including 50% off a digital sub and a really great deal on FT Weekend in print every Saturday. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Zoe Sullivan is our contributing producer and Topher Forges is our executive producer. And thanks go, as always, to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Please take care and we will find each other again next week. <laughs>